Well, good morning and welcome to the Vineyard. We're so glad that you chose to spend part of your weekend with us. It is hard for me to believe that it is December, but it is. And with December comes a whole bunch of fun, right? We get to have amazing treats and fun decorations and we get to exchange gifts. But one thing that I love about this season is Christmas music. Does Christmas music have a hold on anybody else or am I alone? Okay, some of you also feel this. You know, most of us have a couple of songs that we really love. Um, You know, maybe we crank those up and, and sing them out. And researchers have actually looked at why do we love Christmas music so much? And what they discovered is that there is a strong tie to nostalgia when it comes to Christmas music. It it reminds us of a simpler time, a better time when we were young and life was easier. And I know that's true for me because one of my favorite Christmas songs is from my childhood. I distinctly remember that after Thanksgiving, we were one of those families you did not like get ready for Christmas until after Thanksgiving. My mom would get out her tapes. Now, if you don't know what a tape is, this is a tape. <clears throat> and you'd rifle through the tapes to find Amy Grant's Tender Tennessee Christmas. Okay, some of you know this song, which might be the greatest Christmas song of all time. You know, let me tell you if you don't know what it's about. So Amy Grant talks about this incredible tender Tennessee Christmas. It's the only Christmas for her. You know, they don't have snow like Colorado. They don't have the sunshine like LA, but Tennessee has everything you could ever want. Now, did I ever have a tender Tennessee Christmas? No, because I've never lived outside of Illinois. But I could sing that song like I believed it, okay? It's a tender Tennessee Christmas, the only Christmas for me, where the love, okay, I could keep going. I won't but the love circles around us, like the gifts around our tree. I love that song. Christmas music, it sticks with us. And it was just a couple months ago that Kyle Howard, who is our creative and worship pastor here, he sent me a song as we were preparing for our Christmas series. And he asked me to take a listen to it. And when I listened to it, I really sensed that the Holy Spirit was speaking to us through this song. The words and the lyrics of this song, they were so powerful. And I found myself being really connected to it. It's called Noel. And it is by singer-songwriter Chris Tomlin. And as I listened, I realized the Holy Spirit wanted us to use this song to actually develop our whole sermon series for the month of December. And so that's what we've done. We're going to sing the song today, but we've used lyrics from that song to help us develop the messages. Now, Noel, that's a Christmas word that we often use. I have a sign in my house that says Noel, but do you know what the word Noel actually means? You know, if we actually looked at at its history, it comes from the Latin verb nashi, which means to be born. And in the book of Ecclesiastes, um, we read that the birth of Jesus is called natalis, which is a form of that. And eventually the word made its way into the English language the way we know it now, Noel. And generally it means Christmas or Christmas music. But it is important that we actually know that at its root, Noel is tied to being born. And so we're going to look at these beautiful lyrics. We're going to look at this song because there's an incredible message within this song. And this is that message. Come and see what God has done. You see, there is an invitation to each of us during this season to experience God, to encounter him, to be transformed by him. And if we actually accept the invitation to come and see, I believe that our lives are gonna be changed. And over the course of this month, we're gonna look at different topics. We're gonna look at why was Jesus born? And we're gonna discover that he was born to love, he was born to save, and he was born to reign. 
I'm gonna pray and invite the Holy Spirit to be our teacher today. And so we say, Holy Spirit, thank you for this season. Thank you for this time together today. Give us ears to hear. Father, we position ourselves, we posture ourselves to come and see what you have done. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, today I am gonna get to some more familiar passages um, about the Christmas story, but I thought it might just be helpful that you kind of understand where we're gonna go. So the first thing that we're gonna do is we're gonna go back to the beginning and we're gonna talk about the problem that humanity had and why the Christmas story is so important in solving that problem. And then secondly, we're gonna talk about something called the incarnation. It's a very important thing that we understand, and so we're gonna wrestle through what does that mean. And then lastly, we're gonna actually go to Matthew 1, and we're gonna read the story of how Jesus was born. So let's go back to the beginning of the story. In the book of Genesis, we read that God wanted a family. And so he created Adam and Eve. And he created them to live in intimacy with himself. They were created in God's image and likeness, and they were given a job. Their job was to reign over the earth. That was God's plan. Now, you guys, most of you probably know the story that that didn't last very long because Adam and Eve sinned, and they chose to eat of the tree that God told them not to, and sin had three consequences. The first is that it relationally disconnected them from God. They became estranged from God. Secondly, it broke their ability to accurately image God. That identity was distorted. And lastly, it shifted their assignment. Satan became the ruler of this earth, and that shifted their destiny. So today, we are going to focus in on, this, on the relationship side of the gospel story. You see, the whole story of Jesus, it has to, actually has to answer each of these three sub-stories within. And we want to focus on that story of love. You see, humanity was built for connection. We were built for relationship. And if we think about love, love is actually such a key building block in all of our relationships. Love feeds our relationships. It sustains our relationships. It, it helps our relationships grow and, and are be nurtured is this whole issue of love. Now, unfortunately, our sin and our independence actually caused us um, to be separated from God. We could no longer walk in that intimate fellowship with God. And so the question that's out there is how does humanity relate to God in the Old Testament? And the answer is the law. That was the covenant that God made with Moses. And you're probably familiar with the 10 commandments. You might not be familiar with the fact that there was 613 laws that Israel actually had to obey to be in right standing with God. And in addition to this, the Israelites had to offer sacrifices yearly to, to get forgiveness for their sins, to be in right standing or right relationship with, with God. And obviously, this was a challenge, and it led actually to a lot of confusion. Many Israelites got confused about God and his love and how they were to relate to God. Because you see, we were designed for this incredible intimacy, but sin had messed that up. We needed a savior. I think if we're honest, we can look at the world around us and we can actually look at our own lives. And I think that a lot of us are still confused about God's love. You know, we think that if we're good, God loves us. And if we're bad, God hates us. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty and nice. 
We laugh, but actually that is how many of us view God's love for us. Others of us, we view God as a judge, you know, white hair, gavel, ready to bop anybody who makes a mistake. Not a God who's ready and willing and able to help us. Then there's another end of the spectrum. We think, you know, God is love, and love is letting me do whatever I want. God's love is permissive and tolerant. You be you. You see, there's a lot of ways for us to be confused about God's love. Many of us have a skewed view of God's love. And the truth is, you know, some of us have never received God's love. We're actually still estranged, and, and we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're actually exploring the faith. Others of us, we have received God's love once, or maybe a few times, but we fail to regularly receive God's love. And what that means is if we don't know how to regularly receive God's love, that means that we aren't living in his love. And the message of Christmas is come and see. Come and see and receive this love because Jesus is born to love. This is one of his greatest gifts that he gives us. At its core, Christmas is a love story. You know, these broken views of God, they damage us. They affect our ability to connect with God. But let's be honest, they affect our ability to connect with one another. We need a revelation of God's love. And so what we wanna do right now is we wanna wanna think about what does it look like to live in God's love? What does it look like? I want you to ask yourself, when you think about God's love, what do you think? How do you think God loves? What's your relationship like with him? How do you experience his love? Because I will tell you this, learning to live in his love, it will radically change your life. Because when you receive his love, when you live in his love, you understand who he is and you understand who you are. You understand that there is a person who, uh, uh, there is a a person, he is a person, but there is, he's more, he's God, he is the king, he is the one who is the Lord of your life, he's looking out for you, he's behind you, he's telling you who you are. The Bible tells us that God's love, it is patient and it is kind, it is sacrificial and it is selfless. And this is the love then that begins to fuel your life. And so we want to actually learn how to live in that love. And we wanna look now at the person of Jesus. Okay, Jesus was born to love. The lyrics of the song that we're gonna sing in just a little bit say this, love incarnate, love divine. Now, this is kind of a mysterious and complicated verse if we just like stop and think about it. Love incarnate, love divine. What does that mean? I think we need to explore what it means because understanding the incarnation is actually gonna change how we understand love how we understand Jesus, how we understand our Father, how we understand ourselves. So incarnate, what does that word mean? Incarnate means to take on flesh, to embody something. So Jesus is God incarnate. Simply put, Jesus is God in human form. And what we, what we discover when we read the Bible is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies and is God's chosen one, the Messiah, the Savior. He came to earth and he took on flesh. This is what we read in John chapter one, verse 14. And the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. 
And so what this is telling us is that God came to us. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. The actual literal translation there is he dwelt in a tent with us. And what I love here is that John is actually making a parallel. He's connecting the coming of Jesus to humanity with God coming and living with the Israelites in the tent. Because in the Old Testament, Jesus, the way that God lived with his people was in the tent of the tabernacle. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where they would go to connect with God. That's where they would go to learn with God. And what John is actually telling us here in this passage is that there's gonna be a whole new way of connecting to God. Jesus is God in, per, in flesh. Jesus is the incarnation. And we can now know our Father and connect to our Father because he is going to dwell among us. I love there that it tells us that he is not just, you know, he doesn't have just a little bit of grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. Now, this passage, it is mysterious. It is confusing, but it's important because it's gonna, talk, it's gonna show us in a little bit relationally two things, who God is, and who we are. This is one of the most important things that Jesus does. The incarnation shows us who God is and who we are. What we believe is that Jesus was 100% God and yet he was 100% man. This is called the incarnation. Let's look at some verses that support this. Colossians 1.15 tells us this. He, this is Jesus again, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. What this is simply saying is that Jesus reveals who the Father is. The word image there in the Greek is actually icon, and there's two kind of sub-definitions, likeness and manifestation. And what that means is that Jesus is the likeness of God, and he's the manifestation. He's the embodiment of God. Jesus fully reveals who God is. In order for us to know our Father, we need to only look to Jesus. And this is really important because we're confused about love. We're confused about our Heavenly Father. And so some of us actually need to rethink how we've understood love. You know, if we think of love, if we think of God as judgmental, everything's based on performance, that's wrong because Jesus shows us that that's not how he operated. But if we also think that Jesus was just, or God's just tolerant and permissive, that's also wrong because Jesus shows us that that's not who our Father is. We can look at Jesus and know who our Father is and what did Jesus do? He healed the sick, he raised the dead, he healed the broken, he forgave the worst sinner. Jesus is bold and compassionate and, and loving and serves. This is who our Father is. And so Jesus shows us this beautiful picture of who our Father is, who God really is. Jesus is love personified. Let's keep reading another verse. This is Colossians 2.9. Paul writes this, for in him, again, Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. This is actually a bold, airtight declaration of the full deity of Jesus. You see, Jesus is not God junior. He's not God light. He's not God diet. He is God. The fullness of God was put into Jesus. Jesus is 100% God. But did you notice that there was a word in there, bodily? You see, Jesus is also 100% a human. He was a human here on earth. He, he had a body. He had a family. He had a job. He had emotions. He had friends. He ate at picnics. He wept at his friend's, uh, at his friend's tomb. 
He, he was betrayed, he was tortured, he was killed. He experienced everything that we will experience. And why is this so important? Because Jesus actually shows us who we are meant to be. We can look at Jesus's life and he's not just an example for us, he's an example of us. And so what that means is actually, we can look at the life of Jesus and we can say, actually, that's what we were designed to be. So in the incarnation, it's not just showing us who God is, it's also showing us who we were made to be. Jesus actually shows us how we're supposed to relate to our Father. He shows us this picture of intimacy. You know, he says that I am in my Father and he is in me. We live in union with one another. This is the picture of what Jesus shows us. The story of Christmas, the story of Jesus is actually a story of love that God sent his son so much. Love incarnate, love divine came and lived among us. Jesus showed us who the father is and he shows us who we are. Jesus is born to love and part of Jesus's job was to restore us to right relationship with our father, to forgive us so that we could be intimately reconnected to our father. We need to actually receive this love because without this love, we cannot love the world around us. We can't even love our family without this love. And so what ends up happening is that Jesus comes and he shows us who the Father is and who we are supposed to, do, supposed to be. He goes to the cross, he makes a way, and we're gonna continue to talk about this throughout the series of the work that Jesus did for us. I like to think of it this way. Jesus stepped in to our story. He stepped into your story. He stepped into my story. And I don't know about you, but my life looks drastically different because of Jesus. I would not have married the person I married without Jesus. I would not be the mother that I am without Jesus. I would not have this job that I have right now without Jesus. And what the incarnation shows us is that Jesus steps into our story. He comes down, he dwells with us so that we could understand who we are and who God is. This is the story of Christmas. We can understand these two things, who God is and who we are. And then we must wrestle with this incredible truth. Jesus unites our divinity and humanity. God actually wants to incarnate and indwell in humanity. You see, God wants to move in to each of us. He wants to dwell within us so that first we could be changed, but then we could give it away to the world around us. What God does in you, he wants to do through you. And his love is supposed to transform us so that then we can give that away to the world. What happens when God incarnated into Jesus? Amazing things happened. The healing, the, the healing and the hope and the wholeness that was given because Jesus understood he'd been given this incredible gift to give away. So when we look at the story of Christmas, we can see that Jesus was born to love. We get to come and see and receive this love. He took on flesh so that we could be made whole. He came down to save us and to change us and to make us who we were always meant to be. This is the story of incarnation. But you know what? Love doesn't always look like we think it's gonna look, and that's actually the story of how Jesus came. And so I wanna talk now about Matthew 1. And what's so interesting about the Gospels is we get slightly different 
you know, versions of the same story. And Luke, you know, he gives us a lot of detail. He talks about the birth and the conception and all those other things and gives us lots of detail. But Matthew doesn't. Matthew's main goal is that he wants us to know where Jesus came from. And that's why Matthew starts off with a genealogy, which I know you all skip, which you should not skip because that's actually a really important part of the story. Um, but that's okay. That's a message for another day. Um, but uh, Matthew was very committed. He wanted people to know that this was the Messiah from the line of David. And so that's why he lists those all out. But I'm gonna jump down to verse 18. And you know, I know this is a familiar story. And so I just wanna encourage you to listen today with fresh ears to come and see what God has done in this beautiful story of Jesus's birth. I'm gonna pick up in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother, Mary, had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their, their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to, her, to a son, and he called his name Jesus. You know, every time I read this story, I think to myself, we have a supernatural God. And I don't wanna read any part of the Bible without acknowledging the incredible detail, the incredible precision that God had as he authored this story. This story is, is, is incredible. I mean, think about the people that we meet in this story. Mary and Joseph, they're young, they're, they're teenagers. And, and their yes changed the world. You know, we, we meet the Holy Spirit, there's angels, there's a whole bunch of, of people that are in this story that aren't just characters. These are, real, these are real people who made a difference in this story. The prophecies that are fulfilled. You know, this was a prophecy from Isaiah, but there were many prophecies that Jesus' birth fulfilled. What I think is helpful when we read a passage like this is to understand the context a little better. And one of the things I wanna talk about just briefly is marriage in the Jewish culture. There was actually three steps to any marriage. Okay, the first was simply an engagement. And this was usually done actually when the, the people were quite young, usually arranged by the parents. The second step was betrothal. Now, this was actually more of a binding agreement. In fact, you would consider each other your husband or your wife during the betrothal period, although you were not yet technically married. But it was binding enough that if you wanted to separate, you actually had to get a divorce. So it was, it was a serious agreement. It lasted about a year. And then after that, about a year into the betrothal, the marriage ceremony would take place. And that was when you would consummate the marriage and you would fully become husband and wife with one another. So it's helpful to know that Mary and Joseph were actually at the second stage. They were betrothed. Which, have you ever read a text like that and you're like, they were betrothed, but Joseph would have to divorce them? The Bible, is, it's so important to read it with context. He would have had to divorce because they were betrothed. It was a legal agreement. They had not consummated their marriage. They had not yet come together. And it is discovered that she's pregnant. Now, again, Luke is like flowery and gives us more details. And Matthew is just like blunt. It's like, Mary's pregnant. It's the Holy Spirit. 
I mean, I wanna have so much grace because we are reading this story thousands of years later and we know how this story goes and we know all of the, the incredible things that are gonna happen. But I want you to think about how hard this would have been for Mary and Joseph in this moment. I want you to think about how Joseph would have felt betrayed. I want you to think about the fear and, and the worry and the anxiety that this would have produced in them. And Joseph, he's a good guy. That's what we learn here. He doesn't wanna disgrace Mary. He's like, listen, you've gotten yourself into a pickle, but I wanna be kind and I don't wanna like make a big scene. When he has a dream, what's interesting about this dream is that the angel immediately says to him, son of David, now, this would have made Joseph's ears burn because he, when, this, uh, when this was said, this was a, a kind of a throwback to you are from a royal line. You're, there is royal blood in your veins. This is an important message. And so he listens up and he discovers that actually Mary has conceived by the Holy Spirit. She's gonna have a son, a son that is gonna save his people from their sins. Again, Think about the context of a Jewish person hearing this. The only way that they could be forgiven from their sins is through sacrifices. This was a profound message. And then he's told to name him Jesus. Now, growing up, I really thought Jesus was a really rare name. Did, it, did anyone else like think Jesus was a really rare name? Well, I hate, to, I hate to burst that bubble, but actually Jesus was a pretty common name, but it has an incredible meaning, salvation from Yahweh. And now we know that that name is the name above all names, the name that is worthy of all praise. And Joseph is instructed to name his son this. Again, that would have been unusual, that a son would normally have been named in the family line. And, and then there's the prophecy. You know, he's, he's saying, listen, there's a prophecy from Isaiah where, you know, um, there, there would be a virgin and she would conceive. And this is confirmation. This is that happening. And his name is gonna be Emmanuel, God with us. Again, think about the incarnational language there. God and humanity united, God with us. I think we should just pause here for a moment and just think about Joseph's obedience. He came and saw and he received what God had for him. He said yes to this incredible journey. And then, you know, when he wakes up from the dream, he does as he's instructed. I think we should note that obedience. And did you notice there, it said that he knew, uh, he knew Mary not until after she had the baby. That just means they did not have a normal marital relationships until after the baby was born. And in part, that was because, you know, it wanted to be solid that this child was from God, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of a woman, 100% God, 100% man. This is the story of incarnation. And it's an incredible story. But you might be sitting there today saying like, okay, interesting. I know I need to like receive God's love. I know I need to live in his love, but why is it important that we understand this incarnational love? Well, I thought a story might really help illustrate this. And so I've asked my friend and discipleship pastor here, John Sikora, to come up and just share his story of how love radically changed his life. Here's John. Thanks, Julie. You know, really my name's John, and uh, as a pastor here, I do have the privilege of getting to walk alongside people through the ups and downs of life. But more than that, um, I've somehow earned the trust of some of my friends and family, and even strangers at times. To, to hear and to share in some of their deepest and rawest emotions, their feelings. But it wasn't always that way, okay? I actually used to kind of be a jerk. <laughs> you see, I was cold. Um, I didn't understand my own emotions, let alone others. And really, logic and science ruled my mind, not love. 
I was really confused about what love was. And let's just say, in my younger years, I probably made quite a few people cry. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, when my father was six, he died suddenly of a heart attack. And I didn't understand what had happened. I can remember standing in my mom's kitchen and asking her a couple months later, you know, as a six-year-old, like, Mom, when's dad coming home? My family was my sister, who's five years older than me, and my mom, and shout out to my mom. You know, she did an amazing job being both mom, but also the roles that a father traditionally might fill, you know, taking me to sports practices, to games, providing for our family, leading our family, I'm just being there, taking us to Catholic Mass, trying to raise me to be the young man that she thought I should be. And so, Mom, thank you. I love you. You did a great job, even amidst really challenging circumstances. And it occurs to me as a father myself, you know, if you're a single parent now, yeah, I, I can only imagine the challenges that you go through as you love and parent your children well. So you have so much of my respect. No matter what anyone tried, though, when I was a kid, growing up without my dad, it left a hole in my life. And that played out in school as I would um, just kind of feel like I didn't fit in. You know, I had friends, and some of them even grew to be close friends. Um, but always there was just something that was missing. And so uh, when it came time to graduate high school and come down here to the University of Illinois, I moved from the Chicago suburbs down here to be a student. And the journey I'd been on at this point was that I had declared that I was an atheist. I had said, I know there is no God. <laughs> well, in hindsight, that was a little premature. <laughs> um, but I, I, I was, I was really searching. I was on this journey. And I remember thinking to myself, all my problems have to do with wanting things. So I'm just going to pursue freeing myself from want which is a very Zen type of thing. All right, so this is the context of what it was me, what it was like for me to be me coming here as a freshman to the U of I. It's about six weeks into the semester. I go home for the weekend, and my high school sweetheart breaks up with me. I was devastated. <laughs> then my mom and sister drive me back to college here, and I play my first soccer match. I tear my ACL in my left knee. Yeah, it was, it was a rough time. <laughs> My teammates, they dropped me off over at Carl Hospital at the emergency department, and they proceeded to leave me there. Now, guys, I think I just kind of described to you, I was a cocky 18-year-old. I thought I knew that there was no God. That's how confident and kind of arrogant I was. So when I tell you that in that moment, it kind of hit me that I know where Carl Hospital's at. I think I know where my dorm's at. But I have no clue how to get from there to there, and certainly on crutches and without a car, I began to realize maybe I don't have this all figured out. Maybe, maybe I can't take care of myself. And this is where something miraculous happened. Um, somewhere in those first six weeks of college, there was a guy who gave me his phone number. And I'm in the emergency department. I have no way of getting home. I called his number. Guys. He came and picked me up, this guy who barely knew me. Not only that, he, he bought me Jimmy John's on the way home. It was <laughs> this next part of my story, I would not have language for, for years to come. I did not know what I was about to experience is what I now understand to be the incarnational love of Jesus. 
Jesus's love becoming flesh, dwelling in man and lived out through this, through Eric right there and through the group of friends that would show me what love was, the incarnational love of Jesus. They, uh, they took care of me. Um, they did my laundry. They brought me food. They included me in on things. You know, I was literally, like, I felt crippled. I was hobbling around on crutches. Um, but I think they saw something that I, I didn't know about myself. That I was spiritually crippled. I was fatherless. I'd grown up most of my life without knowing what love was. I, I knew my mom and sister's love, but I didn't really know anything love beyond that. And so... Um, I was pretty confused. If you would have asked me about God or Jesus, I would have been like, oh yeah, I know what's in the Bible. I know who that Jesus guy is. I didn't have a clue. And if you would have asked me about incarnational love, like Julie just so beautifully explained, I would be like, incarnational what? Like, Hey, if you heard Julie's message just now and when she talked about incarnational love, you felt something inside you like, I, I, I like that. That sounds beautiful. How do I, in my life, respond to that? Let me just tell you real quick. The simplest, probably one of the best things you can do, invite people into your life. Just invite people. It doesn't have to be flashy. You know, Eric, he gave me his phone number. He invited me in. Nowadays, my wife and I, we invite our friends um, down the street you know, to hang out with our kids, or I invite people to play video games with me. Invite people into your life. It is easy. Well, sometimes it's easy. It is simple. And it is powerful. So you can guess what happened next in my story. This group of guys who's taking care of me, loving me as if I was their brother. What did they do? They invited me. They invited me to their small group Bible study. You probably saw that coming, right? And I went. I went, even though I thought I knew who God was. I went because I wanted to honor their friendship. And I went because I wanted to say that this Bible thing was wrong. I wanted to say that Jesus didn't mean anything to me. And then Jesus happened. Jesus, just like Julie said, Jesus stepped into my story. He stepped into my story, guys. If you've ever been discouraged by like a friend or a family member who you want so badly to know God's love or to know Jesus, and they just have every answer, every excuse, every rebuttal, they're closed, they're cold, they're cut off. Guys, that was me. That was where I was at. And I have good news for you. Jesus loves to do the miraculous. He loves to say, hey, John, you declared yourself an atheist. You declared yourself broken. You declared yourself fatherless. I declare you're my son. You're my daughter. Over the course of the next year, um, God began to encounter me with his love. And I began to really experience the transformation uh, that he desired for me. Now, transformation takes time. Don't get me wrong. Uh, you can ask my wife 11 years. I could still <laughs> use some transforming. Anyone else relate? Yeah, okay. These days, every morning as I drive to church down Lincoln Avenue, I pass my old dorm, PAR, and right across the street from it is a line I grove. And I recall one of those early days as a freshman um, sitting in the trees at Illini Grove and, and just feeling this like aloneness and tiredness and, and really just feeling what it feels like to not know love. That, I mean, that, 
That's the best way to describe it. And I remember one of those nights, um, just kind of spending time with God, and he he's literally took the feeling of weight, the weight of sin that I, I felt on my shoulders, and he just gently took it off. That was what incarnational love looked like for me. So I was transformed once and for all by accepting Jesus' life and his death, his, his crucifixion, burial, and resurrection. That forever changed, transformed who I was. And I continued to be transformed. I continued to have these encounters of love with the Father, to receive, to see what he was doing, and to allow him to transform me. And so this is what I want to tell you. If you right now are feeling at all like who I described that I was, maybe you have questions about God. Maybe you wonder, you know, can I really trust this Jesus guy? Or scripture. Scripture can be really confusing sometimes. I get it. I want you to know that Jesus wants to encounter you with his love today. He wants to transform you. All right, maybe this is you. Maybe you have been a Christian for some time, but life has not turned out how you expected. Been there. Jesus wants to encounter you with his love. This is part of the story he's writing for you. You can be transformed. All right, this last group of people, this is where I probably, in my Christian walk, have related more often than not. And I know some of you feel this way because I've talked with you. You've been a Christian for some time. You believe in everything that Jesus says. You've even prayed for people and seen God's love and his power transform other people's lives. But you look around and you say, what about me? Not me. Can you relate to that? This is what God wants to tell you today. He wants to encounter you with his love afresh. He wants to fill you afresh today. Just like so many years ago, I experienced the incarnational love of Jesus through a simple invitation. He's inviting you today. He wants to say, come. Come and see. Receive my love. Let it, let it affect you. Let it change you. If you do, I can promise you, it'll be one of the best decisions you ever make. What we're going to do now is we're actually going to head into a time of worship, and um, we're going to sing Noel, that song that we based this whole series off of. And then we're going to sing another new song at the end of this set that is all about Jesus. And that's really what this series is about. It's about King Jesus. And so would you stand if you're able? And I just want to encourage you to, um, yeah, if you want to come down front or go out in the aisles and make yourself free, I'm going to just pray us into worship here. So Holy Spirit, we welcome you into this place. God, we want to encounter your love right now. We want to feel your love. We want to receive your love so we can go out and live in your love. And so we invite you now as we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>